Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. All right, let me introduce you today to one of my favorite gurus of natural building. Conrad Rogue is the founder of House Alive and has been pioneering cob building for many years and is the author of House of Earth, a complete handbook for earth and construction. Now, for over 15 years, House Alive has taught more than a 1,000 students how earthen building materials can enhance and uplift our built environment in a simple and elegant way. Now, I reached out to Conrad initially to commend him for an article he wrote called Cobb Speed, which beautifully deconstructs the comparisons between industrial and earthen buildings and how the expectations of natural buildings are often very skewed. Now, in this interview, I asked Conrad about the fundamental differences between green and natural building. We go in depth about why it's essential to incorporate appropriate technology into natural buildings in order to make them perform optimally. And we go over the ever important process of passing your plans for building through the permitting process and how to get the authorities to open up to progressive building ideas. So don't forget to check out the show notes on the Abundant Edge website for links on the article on Cobb Speed. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to Conrad Rogue. Hey, Conrad, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I know you're on vacation right now. Uh, tell us where you are. <laughs> I'm in Yalapa, Mexico, and I'm uh, enjoying a little R&R and nice sunshine and waves. Fantastic. You're actually not too far from where we are. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're in Guatemala, right? Exactly, yeah. Well, hey, I've got a ton of questions for you. What do you say we just jump right in? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, so... Uh, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in natural building. Okay, I'm originally from uh, the Netherlands. I moved to the United States in 1986, started working in uh, summer camps and conference centers. And in uh, 1998, uh, as part of my work of running a conference center, I ran across an organization called the Natural Builders. And um, they decided to have a conference called a colloquium. Uh, at my uh, at my facilities, and um, realized what an incredible group of people this was in terms of creativity and care for the earth and community, um, and um, and they came back a couple of years in a row after that, and I uh, eventually decided to join them and became a, a teacher of natural building. Uh, I took a few workshops and co-taught a few workshops, and uh, that's how I got involved. 
Fantastic. Let's get started actually from the beginning because you have an interesting definition of what natural building is. So could you explain the difference between natural building and green building? Because that's another common misconception. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, the, I think the idea of natural building is that we, or, or I think the, the, the way most people understand natural building is that we try to use mostly materials that are near the building site and that are harvested or mined uh, by the builder themselves, um, which I, of course is very different from green building, which uses mostly manufactured materials, but that may be less toxic or maybe mined or uh, manufactured more uh, in a less damaging way. But that's significantly different. It's still uh, green building is often still putting different manufactured components together uh, versus natural building would be where you harvest your own materials and build with those. And then, you know, in addition to that, natural building has other components with that that um, would include a strong emphasis on owner builder, um, an emphasis on simplicity. Uh, an emphasis on responsible buildings such as smaller cottages rather than big boxes and so forth. Yeah, I like that. I think that's important to make that distinction. Uh, I get asked that all the time too, if I'm a green builder or a natural builder. And really the emphasis on manufactured materials or industrial materials, however sustainably produced they may be, is still quite a significant difference from working with mostly... Um, minimally processed local materials like you pointed out for natural building. And of course, those materials can be very different depending on the site where you happen to be building. You know, it could be earth, it could be wood, depending on what you have there and what you have access to. Um, but yeah, those different emphasis are, I know, very important to me as well. Yeah, and, and of course, um, there's nothing against doing a hybrid forum of many different uh, uh, forms of building. You can do a part of your house in conventional building and part of your house with uh, green building materials and part of your house in mud. So um, I think it's a mistake to think that your house has to be pure one way or the other. Yeah, I very much agree with that too, for sure. Now, one of the main reasons why I reached out to you to be on this podcast in the beginning is because of an article you wrote on the House Alive website called Cobb Speed. Could you summarize that article for us real quick and break down the calculations and considerations that would put conventional and natural buildings to a much more fair comparison? Uh, well, it's a, it's a complicated question. The... Um we get a lot of, in, in earthen construction or in cob building, uh, we, we get a lot of questions, but one of the most common questions is, is this too long? And um, and the reason why it's a complicated question is because it's you're not uh, comparing apples to apples. And with that, I mean, um, in conventional construction, uh, building materials are provided that are already pre-manufactured. Like, for example, you don't get a tree, but you get a 2x4 or a 2x6. And you don't get a, a bag of gypsum, but you get a sheet of drywall. In, uh, in natural building, often um, we harvest the materials ourselves or process them, 
and then uh, built with them, which, needless to say, takes more time, but that comes with, um, you know, significant savings in money, and perhaps um, you can do it ecologically more responsible, um, and there's some real advantages to that. Um, so, in other words, if you if you were to compare the two building techniques, let's say car building and uh, conventional construction, you could start out making an affair comparison to either have the conventional builder process the trees themselves and the gypsum um, and make their own paint and uh, weave their own carpet, um, or perhaps you can supply the cob builders with a ready mix cob mix that you only have to add water and put in the machine and the cob will just come out like a big muddy uh, worm and you can just uh, build the house that way. Uh, so either way, that would make a fair comparison. Um, and then the other thing I think that's a, a main gist of the article is that, um, and it's kind of along the same lines, is that in conventional construction, there's a lot of power tools and a lot of things uh, added to the construction side that make the building go faster. And you could do that with cop as well. You can um, add tractors and lifts and mixing machines um, and so forth and essentially make the building process just as fast as a conventional building. Uh, but then you're also more likely uh, to end up with a building that's similar to a conventional building that's not built with as much love and care and creativity and idiosyncrasies. And so, and there's nothing wrong with that choice. I think it's fine to build an earthen building with a lot of machines. Um, and it will certainly go a lot faster and more or less as fast as a conventional building. But you get a different building site and you get a different uh, house as a result of that. Certainly. And I, I know you mentioned, too, in the article, looking over the span of the, the life cycle of the building in the long term, the comparisons also even out a lot that way as well. Sure. That's the other way you can look at it. Is if you build a quality, and that's probably true of conventional building, too, if you build a quality home that's built slowly and with care for foundation and roofing details and um, that has a lot of uh, beauty, artistic value um, into it, then the house, per definition, is more likely to last longer. And so if you take uh, a house that was built over, let's say, if a six-month period will last 50 years, or a house that was built over a two-year period that lasts 500 years, um, then uh, obviously the 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 lair house was built a lot more efficiently in terms of years of house you get for your building time. Um, but I think uh, the way a conventional housing system is set up with building materials and uh, mortgages and contractors is that the reward goes out to the people that build houses uh, for a short in a, the shortest amount of time, and um, and. But the calculation is not taken to the next level. We also see how long those houses last or how happy the people are in those houses. Yeah, absolutely. Let alone the, the, damage, the, the damage they may cause to the people themselves or the environment later on. 
Yeah, I love that you brought attention to these comparisons because they can be otherwise very hard to illustrate. And frankly, I would recommend that anyone considering either building or contracting a natural structure take a look at all of these factors uh, before getting into what potentially is one of the biggest investments they may ever make in their lives, at least monetarily or possibly even over uh, the span of them actively contributing to the build site, depending on how they choose to manage it. And just being that extra bit informed can certainly help people to justify the initial costs for value that they're getting and just in general be better prepared for what they're getting into with such a large investment. Yeah, and you know, I think the other interesting question is, which I think more and more people are asking these days, what is the value of speed in and of itself? Now, let's say, for example, if you live in a, if you just got hit by an earthquake or a flood and you have no place to live, then speed might be very attractive. Uh, if you're completely broke and you're building a house and you have to it so you can go back to work. But I really people position themselves well before they start building a house so they can actually take the time to build slowly. Um, so I, th- I think it's an interesting question about um, uh, car buildings being uh, slow. And really, I think... Uh, a more important question to ask ourselves is what is the value of building fast? Like, what do we actually gain from it? And again, I think the the whole housing system and construction uh, world is set up to make money and to go fast. But if you want a wholesome natural house, you might want to consider setting yourself up to make it a very slow building process and actually enjoy uh, the process as you go along. And um, and I think once you're actually enjoying it, then it doesn't really matter that much whether it take one or two or three years to build your house. And to some degree, there's people who continue on working on their house and adding on and beautifying it and uh, continuing that relation with a house that's alive and keeps changing. And I think that's the better attitude. Um, but it does require that you step out of the world and mortgages and loans and insurance companies and those kind of things. Uh, but once you can position yourself there, then I think it's very freeing and the, and the process of building a house can become a, a wonderful experience. Certainly. How does design come into the equation with natural building? I myself teach in my courses that a natural building can be just as consumptive and wasteful in operating costs as an industrial home if it's designed poorly. So what, in your opinion, are the most important considerations when designing a home to be both comfortable and efficient? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, speaking mostly, I, I'm speaking mostly for people that live in the Northern Hemisphere. I think the relation to the sun and the mountains is probably, and the wind, is the most important choice you make for your house. Um, so that your house doesn't overheat in the summertime and takes uh, maximum advantage of your uh, of the available sunlight to have your house heat up naturally um, other than that I think um, uh, the, the wall systems are actually relatively unimportant uh, as far as I'm concerned unless you live in extreme climates like Alaska or whatever Minnesota you're really really cold uh, Climbers. Other than that, I think the R value of your walls is, is relatively unimportant. It's, it, I think it's really important in terms of efficiency 
and design that you're, you have really good windows and doors and that the insulation in your ceiling is really good because that's ultimately where the heat, uh, those are the areas where most of the heat disappears. And, and I think in terms of the layout of the house, I'm a, I'm a big, big advocate of keeping the, um, well, sort of depths. Is they design your house not just as an indoor space, but also as an outdoor space. And so you keep the indoor space uh, relatively small with whatever you need, a place to cook, a place to sleep, a place to hang out, um, a place to go to the bathroom. And then you mimic all those um, uh, needs that you have and uh, build provisions for those on the outside too. So you have an outdoor place to sleep and an outdoor place to cook and an outdoor place to sit around the fire. Um, and, um, and that you essentially, uh, for as long as it's possible and depending on your climate and your circumstances, but that you'll live outside as much as you live inside. And I think um, that really enables you to keep your house smaller and when you do need heat in your house to uh, minimize it or heat or light or whatever other provisions. And I think um, that's, a, that's a different philosophy in the sense that most people design their house, their interior space and have everything they need. And then once they're done with that, then the outdoor spaces become a little bit of an after. And um, I think we're not doing ourselves a favor with that. I think uh, we should be outside as much as we can, and um, it's good for our health. It brings us in touch with nature, and it makes the indoor feel better, too, once we are indoors. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, obviously, it depends a whole lot on the climate and where you're living, just how much outdoor time per year is going to be comfortable for you. But one of the, very similar to what you mentioned, I teach gradient design in which you put as few necessary functions entirely encapsulated within a structure um, and basically try and move as many functions as possible into outdoor or seasonally appropriate space. And there is a kind of a gradient effect between what feels completely indoors and what is completely outdoors, uh, achieved through, you know, uh, roofed in areas that perhaps only have one or two walls all the way over to like pergolas where sunlight and rain can still get through but it is somewhat covered and sheltered all the way to your outdoor space and this way not only do you save money in how much you need to construct and the materials required to give you all of those functions but you start to perform more of them outdoors and that has a lot of uh, benefits for your health and for your lifestyle as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, uh, it's true that some climates are not very conducive to being outdoors in the winter and sometimes in the heat of the summer. But it, yeah, I think um, we should step away from the idea that one shell or one box or one house can do everything all the time. It's, uh, I think it's healthier to think of a house as something that provides you shelter from the cold or heat, but then if the uh, weather is pleasant outside, then you have all kinds of things set up uh, where you can spend time outside so you don't have to be in your house. Um, and I, I think um, we've been able to, to live the way many Westerners have lived in recent days because of it and uh, 
and forced air heating. Um, but I don't think they're that uh, healthy for us, and I don't think they're that pleasant. And so I think it's a good idea to move to the outside. Right? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Another element to a well-performing house that often doesn't get covered in many natural building workshops is the integration of appropriate technology for the utility systems and waste disposal especially. Tell us a little about what appropriate technology covers and why it's essential to a well-functioning natural structure. Well, there's different uh, views on what appropriate technology is, but for me it's something that um, that is inexpensive, that's easy to make yourself with parts from the hardware store or parts in the woods or rocks or whatever you find around you. It's easy to repair, and um, it's it's very careful with the use of resources. And so uh, a good example of appropriate technology would bucket toilet, kind of uh, by many known as the humanure system, um, which would be different from uh, a $10,000 composting toilet system with fans and bells and whistles and you know high expense and things that can break and takes up a lot of space. Um, so that would be somewhat less appropriate than uh, a bucket toilet. Um, another good example would be rainwater gathering, a metal roof that um, funnels uh, water into a rainwater tank that you use to irritate, irrigate your garden or take showers or do the dishes. Uh, um, you know, simple solar ovens, lamps, um, any, anything that um, uh, repl- replaces uh, complicated uh, energy uh, 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 appliances or machines that take a lot of energy that are very inefficient and that keep things localized. So you use the sun and the rain that uh, is right around your house to uh, make things happen around your house to create you to 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 give yourself some uh, some comfort and sanitation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm I'm lately really interested in uh, microelectronics. Um, this kind of a uh, you mean like uh, home scale power generation. Next, step. yeah, in the sense that the I've lived off the grid for uh, twenty years now. And I have solar panels and batteries and lights and uh, a blender and a computer and radio. And lately, with the onset of uh, uh, tiny LED lights and uh, power packs and miniature solar panels, I'm now able to charge my phone and have lights in my house just with um, something that costs only $100 and is completely foolproof and takes no installation costs, no permits. there's just a few little wires in a little cabin, and uh, it's become simpler and easier. And even though I don't really understand power packs and solar panels, the over-the-shelf uh, products are so inexpensive and foolproof now that I kind of I started to teach those uh, systems at my workshops now too. And um, there seems to be an increased interest in that, in scaling back our electricity use and keeping it super simple. Just um, through a few LED lights and uh, charging a phone or a computer. Yeah, well, certainly the technology has come a long way and made it a lot more accessible for more people to not only afford the systems, but even have them simple enough that they could hook them up themselves without having to hire a technician. I think that's going to open a lot of doors for people to get their own consumption uh, more independent and decentralized in years to come. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, natural builders or, you know, uh, <laughs> people like mud hut builders like myself, they're often looked upon as uh, 
luddites or people who don't like technology or anything like that, then um, I believe the contrary. I think uh, there's a lot of very interesting uh, technology and electronics that um, can greatly enhance your situation in your mud hut and makes it so you can be independent of the grid and have systems and forms and uh, lots of computers uh, in a very simple and um, a very efficient way. Another question that I hear often is, how long will earthen homes last? Specifically earthen homes. Now, how do you answer that loaded question? Because obviously there's so much more information that you need to gather to be able to give an estimate. Yeah, I I answer it in uh, by saying that mud homes have uh, two beautiful qualities. Oh, there are many beautiful qualities, but in relation to how long they last, they can last uh, very, very long, up to a thousand years or longer, uh, for as long as the roof stays on and the foundation was done well. Or they can last a very short time. And uh, Because they say that the earth is essentially, by the time you take the windows and doors off and you take the roof off, it can become a pile of mud again. And so I think it's totally legitimate to build earthen homes that your great, 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 etc. grandchildren can still enjoy. And I also think it's totally legitimate to build a earthen home that um, that needs to be rebuilt in 15 years because it doesn't create a big pile of toxic uh, waste um, and it's, uh, the materials are relatively inexpensive. When I was, uh, I built a house in Kenya and there um, until recently, it was very common for that to last 15 years, and then they would rebuild them uh, because some of the wood that they use would be eaten by termites, uh, mud, and some wooden poles, and um, a grass roof. And um, people um, have time and know the materials, and it wasn't a it wasn't a big deal to rebuild. It was part of life to every now and then rebuild your house. I think that's a fine strategy, too. Um, it doesn't fit well with uh, our Western lifestyles, but it's definitely a that uh, earthen buildings have. But, I mean, you know, again, going back, you know, I think uh, parts of the, China, uh, the Great Wall of China and the pyramids uh, were built thousands of years ago and are still standing. And, um, you know, mosques that were built in the medieval times in the Middle, in the, uh, middle East are still standing and, and the cottages in England. Um, and obviously, you know, the most obvious example is the Pueblo in Taos, New Mexico. That's a thousand years old. It's the oldest uh, continuous inhabited um, building in the United States. So they, you know, that... That whole village has lasted for a thousand years living in earthen buildings. Yeah, those are quite testaments to what is possible with this. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting too. Like, it seems like the, um, it, it's paradoxical because the more we use materials that have the quality of lasting forever, like uh, concrete and glass and stainless steel uh, and marble, uh, and really uh, refined plastics. These materials, we, we bring them on because they give us a feeling that they will last forever, they don't wear, they don't take any maintenance. 
But then when we built with them, we actually start to strong because they don't actually change. They don't have a life in them. They don't seem to take scratch as well or dings. Um, they instantly become ugly and start to uh, turn against us. And so I see a lot of buildings that actually would have the potential of the last years being taken down after 20 or 30 or 40 years because um, the countertops are out of fashion or the stainless steel is starting to become too ugly or the um, uh, concrete doesn't wear nicely. And so I think um, in, in design uh, and in choosing materials, uh, the paradox more materials that will last forever uh, the more we want to actually take down those buildings and start over again because we uh, find that we've surrounded ourselves by dead materials and eventually that is not um, good for our soul. Now in your experience working with students and giving workshops all around the world do you think it's realistic for someone to have the skills and knowledge necessary to build their own house after taking just one course? Yes and no. It depends a lot on the person. Um, there's obviously there's no guarantee that somebody can build a house after one, let's say, a ten-day workshop. Um, but there's certainly a lot of people who have done that, and so it is possible. Uh, I haven't quite figured out what the determining factor is. An obvious one is, but but I'm not even counting these people. But there's people who take my workshops who have previous building experience. They've already banged the cabin together or built a house or have worked in the construction industry. And for them, it's much easier to um, to go on and, and uh, start replacing materials, let's say, uh, drywall with mud. Um, but then there's also novice builders who um, would take a work and never done anything, and they go off and they start building a house. The most interesting experience I've had with a guy who took a one-day sort of a scratch-and-sniff workshop of mine <clears throat> three years ago, and uh, it was in May, and he started shortly after that uh, in his backyard, and he now has a, um, two years later, he has a 200 square foot uh, that he built entirely by himself, working a day and a half a week. Uh, on his day off, and uh, with no building experience, no nothing, and, um, and he just sort of, he read my book, and he read a couple other books, and um, uh, went for it, so why does it work for him and not for others, I don't know, some of it has to do with confidence and strength, and uh, problem-solving skills, um, but I'd be the first to admit that you can become a master builder in 10 days. Um, but with a lot of courage and, and uh, determination, you can do it. Certainly, yeah. It's, it's often one of those things where you can advance as much as you apply yourself during the time when you're learning and how much responsibility you take for yourself to fill in any gaps in your knowledge that you didn't get from that course. I agree. Yeah, and you know, I, I should also say, like, I don't really. My priority is not to teach people per se. Uh, I don't have the narrow goal of teaching people how to build a house. Um, I also teach people how to build earthen ovens and how to do earthen plasters and floors, how to do uh, uh, light straw clay infill methods, and basically um, give people the skills that wherever whatever stage they're in, 
whether they have a tiny backyard and they're willing to build a little, uh, they want to build a little garden wall, um, or they want to put some earth and plaster on their drywall, or they want to insulate a house or their ceiling uh, better, or perhaps take the next step and build a little cottage or, uh, or build a whole house for a family. All those things are possible, and we shouldn't limit uh, um, earth and construction to uh, just house building. I think there are so many uh, hybrid forms and, and ways of making earth and construction uh, or, or making mud building part of your life, all the way down to putting face paints <laughs> on your body. For sure. One of the most common hurdles and sticking points that I hear from people looking to build naturally in the U.S. or in other heavily regulated countries is that the codes and permits don't allow for cob or other natural buildings to be constructed. How have you had success with regulatory bodies or gotten around the permitting process throughout your career? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of... Uh, I, I've, I've uh, applied a couple of different strategies. One is uh, I've I built a code-approved hybrid house um, for my family, and um, that was basically a two-by-four stick-frame house with a straw bale infill and then a cob and earthen interior. And so I used three different techniques, like earthen building, straw bale infill, and conventional construction. And uh, that went uh, through the building code with flying colors. It was just no problem. Um, in the, and I live in, a, in an area with pretty strict uh, building codes. So that's, a, that's an easy way to go about it. And sort of my uh, advice is to not be a purist if you want to build a large house that's uh, code approved. Another uh, successful strategy that many people have done is just to move to areas, if you're footloose and fancy, to move to areas where there are no building codes, um, which there are many in the United States. Um, you know, several states, uh, definitely in rural areas, there's no code enforcement. Um, you know, I think uh, Idaho, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, Missouri, Tennessee, those are all states that I've heard um, people building without building codes, uh, without any problems. And then um, another option is to build um, small, uh, in most cases under 200 square feet, uh, which is when you can put a non-inhabitable structure, like an auxiliary structure, up on a piece of land. And uh, you're not allowed to live in it. But again, with the little LED lights and a composting toilet or a bucket toilet and a few other simple things, you can... Um, not make it look like it's lived in and then it'll be hard to for building officials to uh to bust you or to tell you to take it out um, so those are i think three of the most common common strategies yeah and i've heard from quite a few other natural builders throughout interviews in this podcast that for the most part if you go into a building situation with a cooperative attitude and a willingness to work with the authorities in order to get your structure legalized, chances are they're going to be pretty helpful and work with you as well. Um, but if you go into it with an antagonistic mindset or kind of uh, sort of a pessimistic relationship with the coding or 
permitting authorities, you're much more likely to have problems with them as you move forward. You know, I, I hear that a lot too, and I'm not sure if I heard evidence to that. I think it's a, it's a good attitude, but my experience with code officials is they're mostly bureaucrats and they, they, and they have rules to follow. Um, and so I think what is more, uh, at least in my experience, is that people don't realize there are provisions in the code that you can do. Like, for example, there's nothing, like people are worried about putting in an earthen floor, for example, or doing earthen plasters, and there's nothing in the code anywhere in any place that prevents that from, that prevents you from doing that. And so um, I really encourage people to not be, um, not be afraid to ask, but, but but generally speaking, if it's if the if the county does not allow, let's say structural cob walls, then they're not gonna. No matter how friendly you are, they're they're usually not gonna bend the rules for you if you're <laughs> if you come with a big smile on your face, because they have to somehow justify it. Um, but I, but I do think there's a lot of ways if you read the code carefully, that you can find ways to do things that you didn't think were possible. Yeah, absolutely. So before I let you go here, and you've been very generous generous with your time, Conrad, could you tell us how people can get in touch with you, your company, House Alive, and if you have any events coming up like workshops or work parties? Yeah, so I have a website called um, housealive.org, and uh, people can visit me there. I also have a Facebook page um, and an Instagram account. Um, I have, uh, two workshops coming up in, um, in July and August. Actually, the workshop in July is full, but I have still some spaces left in, uh, August. And, uh, they're kind of, they're, there's something new that I'm trying to do is, um, there, uh, I'm introducing a new term called Versa Terra. It's a two, made up two words, Versa and Terra. Um, and um, I'm trying to um, create a workshop that really encompasses all the different ways of earth constructions and make people feel comfortable with that and become uh, become really familiar about how clay soils can create building materials. And that's the essence of uh, the, these are 10-day workshops. Um, that's the essence of these workshops. And... Um, and, and the idea is really that once people have taken that workshop, they can go in all different directions with that, whether they want to build an oven or remodel their house or build a, a cob cottage or an earthen hut somewhere. Uh, you can go in any direction. And so uh, you can find more about that on my website and the description of that. Excellent. Yeah, those sound fantastic. Thank you. No, thank you, Conrad. I really appreciate you taking your time, especially out on your vacation. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I really appreciate the insights that you shared with our listeners over this time. Good. Well, thank you for the work that you do. It's really, it's really nice that, to see that somebody is um, bringing natural building to the podcast world. You're very welcome. And let's stay in touch. I would love to do a follow-up episode sometime in the future, too. So let's stay in contact. Okay. Thank you very much, Oliver. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. 
On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.